So we're a week and a half away from Thanksgiving, as I mentioned, just two weeks away from the start of Advent. That means the holidays are officially upon us. And as I'm sure you know, I absolutely love this time of year. The middle of November is that kind of last bit of normal fall before the activities of Thanksgiving and Christmas begin. The leaves are starting to turn. The summer temperatures are gone. In fact, this weekend in particular, it is cool enough for a fire in the fireplace and hot chocolate. I was delighted to discover that it's all Christmas music all the time on 102.1, in case you're looking for Christmas tunes. Even the Cowboys are are adding to the ambiance with a a late afternoon game in chilly Green Bay today. Uh, This image perfectly captures my my mid-November mood. I can only assume that that's a cup of Thanksgiving blend from Starbucks in that coffee cup right there. Uh, Listen, Thanksgiving blend is the very underrated cousin of Christmas blend, which gets all the headlines this time of year. Totally. I had some this morning. Highly recommend it. Uh, The sentimentality of the holidays really really kicks in beginning about now, I think. Most of us have memories associated with Thanksgiving, hopefully more positive than not. Whether it's a a cherished family recipe or a particular uh, home where everyone gathered when you were growing up or a long-standing family tradition that everyone shared, the holidays uh, can certainly evoke a powerful emotional response. And I personally believe that our childhood memories of the season shape um, or at least influence our adult experience of it. My own childhood memories of this time of year are positive for sure, but they're a bit complicated. They don't really involve a particular food or a specific gathering place like grandma's. Um, They're more about the way Thanksgiving made me feel. My parents divorced when I was uh, very young. My mom remarried when I was four, and my stepfather's job moved us to Maryland a couple of years later. But all of my family on both mom's and dad's sides have always lived in Dallas. So while uh, Maryland was a wonderful place to grow up, we were not near any family at all. Thanksgiving was one of my visitation periods with dad. And so for 10 years, um, beginning in 1977 until I went to college, I would get on a plane whenever school let out and I would fly back to Dallas to visit dad's side of the family. Those old enough to remember will know that this was back in the day when flying seemed like an incredibly rare and special thing to do. Uh, I flew Braniff a couple times back to Dallas, if that dates me at all. And for Thanksgiving Day, we would gather at one of our family members' homes. It was often my grandmother's, but not always, kind of rotated around. And everyone was always excited to see me since I was so rarely in town. And I'll just admit, I, I did not hate being the center of attention. That wasn't the worst thing in the world. And we enjoyed the the stereotypically copious amounts of food. We always had way more than we needed. And this is a really crucial point, and I know many of you are gonna be with me on this. Thanksgiving uh, was always, dinner was always the midday meal, as God intended, (laughs) prior to, to the Cowboys kickoff. That's in like Leviticus chapter 65. Thou shalt eat before kickoff. This is an important point. And we all watched the the Cowboys game, of course, and most importantly to me, everybody there was actually a Cowboys fan, unlike the heathen friends that I had in Maryland who all loved the Washington football team. Thanksgiving always had this kind of uh, family reunion feel to it because this was um, 
often the only time that I saw many of my family members. And I think that, that living far away from the people we love makes those opportunities for connection all that more meaningful. These, these deeply held childhood memories are no doubt part of the reason that I love this season so much. Now at this stage of my life, my gratitude this time of year is very much about uh, intentional time with my wife Whitney and our two sons. Uh, with our kids' schedules these days, our lives are very full. Their activities and their social calendars keep us on the go. So Thanksgiving week is a, a much needed pause between the frenzy and busyness of um, Advent and Christmas. Before all that begins, we get a chance to kind of take a breath and, and be together. And I, of course, love that our entire culture collectively takes the time to give thanks for what we have, even if it's only for a, a brief amount of time, so that whatever our childhood experiences were, we can certainly celebrate that. So, as we near Thanksgiving in these uh, last two Sundays before Advent begins, we're gonna do a, just a real short sermon series on the theological concept uh, that provides the foundation for this time of year. Gratitude is uh, a concept that's, that's deeply rooted in our faith tradition. Gratitude to God for the, the countless blessings in our lives fills the pages of scripture from you know, the beginning of Genesis all the way through to the end of Revelation. And our scripture for this morning is the Old Testament lectionary text for today. Uh, here's what you need to know before we read it. So the book of Isaiah is uh, one of the most important books in the Old Testament. It's been an important part of our faith history. It shaped our faith history in important ways. And scholars believe that Isaiah's 66 chapters are actually uh, a composite work that was written by several different authors during at least three distinct periods of Israel's history uh, over the course of more than, than two centuries. So it, this is a kind of an epic work. So-called First Isaiah covers the first 39 chapters of Isaiah. It was written in an era that included the fall of the northern kingdom to the Assyrians in 722. That northern kingdom was called Israel. And in 722, it was conquered by the Assyrians uh, and ceased to exist. Um, it was annihilated from the pages of history. And so First Isaiah uh, is full of oracles of doom and oracles of judgment. Um, reflecting this dark period. It's, it's got a very ominous air as you read it. Second Isaiah is different. That's chapters 40 to 55. That was written during the exile, probably near the end of the exile in Babylon. Uh, the Babylonians had conquered the southern kingdom of Judah in 597. So northern kingdom is conquered in 722. Southern kingdom, Judah, 597. And the Babylonians had destroyed Jerusalem. They had uh, raised the temple to the ground and carted off most of the population to Babylon, including most of those who had been in power of some kind. Unlike first Isaiah, which is pretty gloomy, second Isaiah has a tone of hope and uh, the promise of return for those living in exile. Third Isaiah, where we're reading from today, is chapters 56 to 66, and it was written to the community after their return from exile. So uh, they've been delivered from captivity, uh, but when they return to Jerusalem, things are not like they remembered, uh, nor is the return from exile as glorious as second Isaiah had predicted. When they get back to 
Jerusalem to Judah. Um, there's this difficult rebuilding work to be done. Life is harsh in the ruins of the capital that Babylon had destroyed half century earlier. Economic oppression is rampant. And some of those who had been left behind during the exile had turned to pagan rituals and false gods as a way of trying to cope with uh, the problems in, in the absence of the temple. So in other words, uh, during this period of Third Isaiah, there was, there was tremendous pain, there was tremendous discomfort and tremendous dissatisfaction among God's people as they tried to rebuild their lives. That's the context of what we're reading today. And it's in that context that Third Isaiah offers a vision for a glorious future. So this is Isaiah 65, verses 17 to 25. We'll just go ahead and read all of it now. Listen, friends, for the word of God. For I am about to create new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating. For I am about to create Jerusalem as a joy and its people as a delight. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and delight in my people. No more shall the sound of weeping be heard in it or the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant that lives a few days or an old person who does not live out a lifetime. For one who dies at a hundred years will be considered a youth and one who falls short of a hundred will be considered accursed. So let me just pause right here. He is talking about this future glorious state. So, if you love someone who died less than 100, don't worry, <laughs> they're fine. That's our theology has evolved over the years. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be offspring blessed by the Lord and their descendants as well. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, but the serpent, its food shall be dust. They shall not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So to a people who were hurting, who needed a vision for a brighter future, who needed assurance that God was still with them in the midst of hardship and would be with them no matter what challenges they faced, this, this next to last chapter of Isaiah offers a vision that would become one of the most cherished visions in all of scripture, in all of our faith history. So cherished, in fact, that a later Christian theologian, the John who wrote the book of Revelation, built upon uh, what would become the next chapter, or next to last chapter of the entire Bible. Revelation builds upon this Isaiah 65 to write the next to last chapter of the entire Bible, Revelation 21. In fact, um, that particular chapter of Revelation and the way that author interprets this 65th chapter of Isaiah is for me one of the most beautiful passages in the entire canon. We'll save that for another day. But our point for today is that these verses have resonated 
throughout the centuries since Third Isaiah first wrote them, resonated with our faith, our faith ancestors, resonated with other theologians, and resonated with artists, as we'll see. Isaiah gives us a vision for God's desire and intention for the world, for creation, for humanity, for our relationships with God and with each other. To those returning from exile, God assures them that all shall be well and that God is with them through it all, picking up on a vision that first appears in 1st Isaiah in the 11th chapter. Isaiah 65 expands upon um, this idea of what has poetically been called the peaceable kingdom. And it's a, a vision that, I, as I said, has inspired people for centuries, including this artist. Now, this, this may be an image that looks familiar. Uh, you may have seen work by this particular artist. From 1822 until his death in 1849, a Quaker preacher and artist named Edward Hicks painted a series inspired by Isaiah's peaceable kingdom. So Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6 reads this way. You, you may have heard this verse before. The wolf shall live with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the kid. The calf and the lion and the fatling together and a little child shall lead them. We read that sometimes during the Christmas season. This image of, of creation at peace has resonated for centuries, and it certainly did with this Quaker preacher. Over the course of 27 years, uh, this image resonated with him so much that Hicks would paint over 100 variations on the peaceable kingdom, including this one. Uh, in which he included off to the side, so to the left you see there, that's a depiction of William Penn's treaty with the Indians. Penn had introduced Quakerism to the Pennsylvania colony, making the treaty depicted here 62 years after the first Thanksgiving. So it's the same era of American history. It's that same ethos of cooperation and relationship between the newly arrived Americans and the Native Americans who were here before us. And in this, this conflated image, what Hicks has done is had uh, Isaiah's peaceable kingdom meet the spirit of that first Thanksgiving, the earliest Thanksgiving holidays. Now the paradox of Isaiah's peaceable kingdom is that while it, it certainly does point to an idyllic future that God will bring someday. That, that's true that it does that, but it actually captures God's original intention for creation and humanity, what God originally wanted for us, namely uh, that we live in what our faith ancestors would have called shalom, the kind of cooperation and mutual support that defined the spirit of thanksgiving that we continue to celebrate today. The God who was with God's people in exile, also brought God's people safely back home and would be with them as they rebuilt their lives. And filled with gratitude for all that God had done for them and would do in the future, God's people in Isaiah's vision can look forward to a day when peace and goodness would reign. Why wouldn't people of faith live in gratitude to such a God? Back in 2017, I, I first read a book that I highly recommend. Um, we did a sermon series on it a couple of years ago, inspired by it a couple of years ago. It's called The Book of Joy by Archbishop Desmond Tutu and his dear friend, the Dalai Lama. And the, the subtitle is Lasting Happiness in a Changing World. 
It's a, an exploration of the spiritual practices that have the power to keep us spiritually healthy in the midst of a tumultuous world and tumultuous times. Based on their respective Christian and Buddhist theologies, they talk about what they call eight pillars of joy. And for each of these eight pillars of joy, they include recommended spiritual practices. One of the eight pillars is, not surprisingly, gratitude. And since September 2017, when I first read the book, um, I followed one of their one of their practices, they recommend keeping a, a gratitude journal. And I know many of you do this as well. It simply means uh, at some point every day, um, writing down three things for which you're grateful, ideally every day, coming up with three unique things, new things that you hadn't written, at least not recently. And it was really satisfying for me uh, early in this year to have to buy a second gratitude journal because I filled up the first one. I don't stick with stuff that religiously, I guess I'll say it that way, uh, sometimes. But this one I did, and it's made all the difference. And they recommend this practice because the research is so consistent and so clear. Gratitude is good for our physical and our emotional health. And I can personally attest uh, that the daily discipline of physically keeping track of our blessings has tremendous spiritual benefits. You know what else does? Ah, smiling. The brain research is uh, amazing on this. Like, this is not just a fun reason to put up a, a shot from Elf. Although, you know, it's always appropriate to put shots up from Elf. But the research on smiling is incredible. Here's a passage from the Book of Joy. Smiling for as little as 20 seconds can trigger positive emotions. Smiling stimulates the release of neuropeptides that work toward fighting off stress and unleashes a feel-good cocktail of the neurotransmitters serotonin, dopamine, and endorphins. I mean, this is how, listen, God knew what God was doing when he made us, right? Serotonin acts as a natural antidepressant. Dopamine stimulates the reward centers of the brain and endorphins are natural painkillers. And here's the kicker, smiling also seems to reward the brains of those around us, making them feel better too. Is there a moment in the year <laughs> that could possibly be more appropriate for us to smile more than we otherwise would have than over Thanksgiving dinner? <laughs> I mean, for some of us, this season is a time of ease and comfort and joy with no complicated family relationships, no family drama, no trauma. I hope that's the case for you. If it is, count your blessings. You've got a tremendous way to start your gratitude journal, <laughs> if that describes you. It's certainly the idealized picture that our culture gives us of the holidays. But for some, November is tough for a, a, for a variety of reasons. Uh, for those who do not have warm memories of this time of year, or for those who have lost someone they love, especially when their place at the table is empty for the first time this season for those who are unable to be with family and they really want to, or uh, whose family insists on talking politics at the Thanksgiving dinner table. Terrible idea. However we, we show up this season, whether we're in a good place or a tough one, Archbishop Tutu and the Dalai Lama have great 
practical advice for, for living in gratitude no matter our circumstances because whether things are good or bad in our lives in this moment right now as we come up on the holidays, there's plenty for which we can be thankful. And these practices are truly as simple as keeping a gratitude journal and smiling more than we otherwise might. And what we know theologically and scientifically is that if we do these two simple things, we'll be doing our part to help bring God's peaceable kingdom. May it be so. Amen.